Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Hello and welcome to another episode of Between the Stacks. My name is Jennifer Baxter. I'm the Library Director for the Athens Limestone County Public Library and today I'm sitting here with Ron Fritzy. and Ron has written a book titled Hope and Fear and so he came in today to talk to us about it. I think it's really interesting. I'm excited to get into this conversation. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how this book came to be. Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in Indiana, and as my, some of my childhood friends will tell you, I was always interested in history, so uh, they're not surprised I became a history professor. And I went to college in the Chicago suburbs, and uh, then went to LSU for a master's in history in Cambridge, where I got my PhD. And uh, I actually got a history professor's job at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, then from Lamar, I went to UCA as a department chair in history at University of Central Arkansas. And from there, I came to Athens State, where I was dean of arts and sciences for 12 years. And I finished the last couple of years of teaching, which was good. I did not want to die in the saddle as a dean and everything. So it was really great to go back to the teaching. And in the meantime, I worked on scholarship. And where I got started on what ended up being hope and fear, which is about you know modern myths and conspiracy theories and pseudo-history, was as 1992 was coming up, I wanted to do a course on Columbus and the Age of Discovery. Particularly, it would be focused for people who were teachers or teacher ed candidates. And, and I've actually continued to teach that course ever since. In the course of preparing for it, I came across theories about people who came to America before Columbus. You know, Vikings, the Phoenicians, Romans, and that type of stuff. And also, it seemed like everybody had a Columbus, a Chinese Columbus, a French Columbus. Um, there was a Polish Columbus. And now, are these nationalities the Columbus quote-unquote, that discovered that area, or they sent someone to America to discover Yeah, th- these were people who were, like, somebody who was supposedly got there before Columbus. I gotcha. And, and on and on. So there were all these theories, and a lot of this was connected with the Vikings and all of this type of thing. And so I thought, well, that that's kind of interesting. And so I had been working with uh, ABC Clio, the reference publisher, I called the acquisitions editor that I'd worked with, and I said, would you be interested in a book about theories of people who came to America before Columbus? And she said, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. Write up a proposal. I did. They accepted it. And so then various books followed after that that were along these themes, and that eventually got me to this one, which was just a another grip of the false ideas that influence people. And I find that interesting because, you know, if, if you look out there, you know, we have all these conspiracy theories that are whirling around mm-hmm. that have little to no basis right. in fact. Right. And yet people believe them passionately. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the phenomena I'm interested in. And so then anyway, I got into that. In the meantime, we had a little journal at Lamar, and I was one of the editors. And one day we got a submission from this man over in England, Jeremy Black. 
And then he came over and gave a talk. And he's the one that hooked me up with Reaction Books in London, which okay. is a nice publisher to work with. And they also distribute it in the United States through the University of Chicago Press. Okay. So, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So Reaction is the one that has published Hope and Fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is my uh, third book with Reaction. Oh, wow. How many books have you written in total? Let's see. If you count the ones that are edited, it's like, Right around uh, 12 or 13. Wow, that's a lot of books. Yeah. With your Columbus book, did you ever find any concrete evidence that someone came here prior to the Columbus we know? Oh, well, the Vikings definitely made it. You know, uh, for example, uh, some years ago, they discovered what was Leif Erikson's camp on Newfoundland at this place called La Anza Meadow. And there's a park there and everything. And so we've got little artifacts. So we know, like, for example, that... uh, the people who were living in Greenland, the thing is, it's not that green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they needed timber. And so, in fact, they would go across and cut timber and basically tow it back over to Greenland for their use. And there were other artifacts. The thing is, nobody should ever think that these people are completely isolated, with like Eskimos or whoever, because they've discovered a piece of ceramics that had come all the way from Eastern Europe and was in an Eskimo camp. So obviously it had been traded by various people along the way. And we'd noticed there were Viking little artifacts in some of the sites. So Very cool. It's like telephone, but with things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, you left me with this publisher's pamphlet about the book, and I just wanted to kind of read over what it says because I thought it was a good descriptor about your upcoming book, Hope and Fear. So it says, Is a secret and corrupt Illuminati conspiring to control world affairs and bring about a new world order? Was Donald Trump the victim of massive voter fraud? Is Queen Elizabeth II a shape-shifting reptilian alien? Yeah. Who is doing all this plotting? In Hope and Fear, Ronald H. Fritzy explores the fringe ideas and conspiracy theories people have turned to in order to make sense of the world around them. From myths about the Knights Templar and the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel to Nazis and the occult. The Protocols of Zion and UFOs. As Fritzy reveals, when conspiracy theories, myths, and pseudo-history dominate a society's thinking, facts, reality, and truth fall by the wayside. That's a great description. Yeah. And I think it's extremely timely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More so than when I started. <laughs> yeah. So what is up with the Nazis and the occult? Oh, gosh. There's a number of different theories about the Nazis. You know, one of the earliest widely read biographies of Hitler was uh, Hitler, A Study in Tyranny by Alan Bullock. And he basically took the approach that Hitler was just all about power. There was not much in the way of ideology or anything like that. He just wanted power. And um, that's been modified quite a bit. Um, the thing is, within the Nazi movement and in Germany itself, there were a lot of strange ideas that were floating around. Um, you know, the whole idea of Aryanism, that the Germans were descended from the ancient Aryans. And they took that back even further, that they were descended from the Atlantean super race. Oh, and, wow. everything. and this is all like connected to like... This theosophical movement where you had these root races. And so it's like it was a Teutonic version of being a chosen race, so to speak. 
A lot of Germans accepted this type of thing. It's like the word they had for it was Volkisch, which was like a nationalistic identity type of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, then there were academics that pushed it and various other people that pushed it. And it went hand in hand with the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. The Jews were the evil people who would keep the Aryans down and things like that. Now, one of the things people need to understand is that in Weimar Germany, where that Nazism arose, the anti-Semitism predated the Nazis. But the thing is, the Jewish population in Germany was slightly less than 1%. Mm, wow. Okay. It was also highly assimilated. And in fact, the records would show that where he had mixed marriages, where a Christian and a Jew married each other, in three out of four of the couples, the Jewish person converted to Christianity. So in fact, like uh, Judaism was actually becoming less and less prominent. And, and at the same time, what had happened in the 19th century, like for example, anti-Judaism was basically a Christian response against the Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the idea that the Christians felt that the Jews should convert and things like that. That's one of the interesting things today about Christian Zionism is that all this support for Israel is so that the Jews will convert. Now, they must not spend a lot of time around Israelis because that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. But what happened was towards the latter part of the 19th century, Wilhelm Marr, pushed forward the idea that Judaism was actually a racial thing. Mm. Okay, because Mm. under anti-Judaism, if a person was Jewish and they converted to Christianity, everything's good. Mm. You know, they get assimilated. But with the racial Judaism, then that becomes they're going to be a Jew forever and these supposed evil traits that go along with being Jewish are their present. They're, you know, like a termite in your society undermining and eating it up and this type of stuff. And that's what had happened in Weimar, Germany. And what's strange is, how could you tell the person was Jewish? Yeah. Because for one thing, over centuries, there'd been so much intermarriage. You know, the thing is, like, the idea that there was a Jewish look was a myth because part of the Nazi pseudoscience was that they wanted to do anthropology where they would do the physical anthropology and measures a person's nose, the size of their head, all of this stuff, looking for how you could tell a Jewish person by doing it. Well, all of their uh, research basically came back, you can't do it, which was unacceptable. (laughs) That was all part of the pseudoscience. And like, for example, they sent some expeditions out to look for Aryanism and stuff. And one was to go to Tibet. They did all these measurements, and they were around these, you know, Tibetans, and well, they're Aryan, and you're looking, well, they don't look like you. What yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. And and they were trying to come up with various things like that, and it was all trying to twist history and science uh-huh. to fit their ideology. Right, and that kind of sounds familiar for today, uh, right? Yes, yeah, yeah there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going on, yeah. Yeah, you say pseudoscience, and it says in here in the description, pseudo-history. So are those like definitive ideas, like the definition of pseudoscience would be? Uh, Well, it's basically science that purports to be science. You know, it's fake. It's just a false claim. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you take, for example, um, if you watch any episode of Ancient Aliens, (laughs) you're going along, and of course, like as a historian, all of a sudden they'll say something. That's not right. Yeah. Like they were talking about there's this 
man, Zachary Sechin, he died a few years ago, and he wrote a bunch of books about the idea that there's this wandering planet that has this sort of humanoid race on it, the Anunnaki, and you hear these things come up quite a bit in ancient aliens, and it's in an irregular orbit, and somehow, you know, it self-heats itself so it can be far away from the sun, and they come around about every 12,000 years. And they're talking about how Sechin claimed that he discovered this by looking at all these cuneiform documents. And then they go and they make the claim, well, Zachary Sechin is the first person who was able to decipher this cuneiform document. And number one, that's not true. It was Henry Rawlinson in the 1830s that did this. And secondly, everybody who actually knows about how cuneiform operates and is read will basically tell you that Zachary Sechin didn't know what he was talking about yeah. and everything he said was inaccurate, wrong, mistranslated, and this type of thing. Okay, so tell me what cuneiform documents. Oh, those are like what the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians wrote in, so that it's on the little mud tablets, a stylus that would mark and things like that. So he basically just looked at the tablets and came up with his own system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could do that too. You know, this little image means pizza. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, (laughs) and they'll make that claim. And and of course, you know, someone who doesn't know, oh, that's interesting. This guy's the first one. Oh, no, he wasn't. It's a false claim right Mm -hmm. away. I teach a class called Fringe History. We have a lot of teacher ed students Mm -hmm. at Athens State. And I'll tell them, you know, like, for example, when you're in class, you're going to have some student come up to you and basically say, say on ancient aliens, they made this claim. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is you need to treat that as a teachable moment. You don't sit there and say, oh, that's just baloney. Mm -hmm. Okay. What you have to do is show them why it's wrong. Right. And and get them also to think about how they themselves can analyze this type of stuff. And I noticed, like, I've got one assignment I'm going to change because they look at a video of Atlantis, and it's got two competing theories. And there's this one that's this couple that apparently they've got some money because they can afford not to actually have a job, and they've got a boat out by the Bahamas, and they're around the, you know, Bimini with the... The Bimini Road is, you know, associated, built by aliens, built by Atlanteans, built by the Chinese. You know, which theory is right? Right. You know, basically, the geologist says natural formation. And these people, are they're just treasure hunters. They they don't have any academic credentials to do this. And I have some of the students will look at this and say, oh, you know what, makes sense and stuff like that. And so what I'm going to do is change up the assignment and I'm going to have them watch it, and then I'm going to do a Zoom presentation and go through it step by step to show them what they need to do to get to the bottom of this Mm -hmm. and everything. Because, you know, what people need to understand is when you see these like kind of wacky documentaries that can Mm -hmm. show up on the History Channel or on the Learning Channel or Travel Channel's got a lot of that stuff. And what people always need to understand is they're making a documentary to persuade you to a point of view. And what you have to do is use some critical thinking, use some common sense, and be a bit skeptical about Mm -hmm. this because a 20,000-year-old civilization that nobody knows about but these few people in this video, just how credible is it? Right, right, right. (laughs) I love love this line of thinking, though, because... One of the things we've heard so much about is rumors and um, 
conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and all this stuff coming out. And as a librarian, you know, I'm always like, okay, this is a simple fix. You know, yeah. we, we do some research, we do some reading, we do some critical thinking. And back in the day, my first full-time librarian position, I was a high school librarian, mm-hmm. and we had these books called Opposing Viewpoints. Right. And yeah. I, I loved that series, and I don't see that coming out these days where, okay, let's take this claim and let's oppose it with the opposite Mm -hmm. claim and let's dig into it and let's find research and factual information, pull it all out and read it and decide what is is best. So um, I love Eleanor Roosevelt. I talk about her all the time. My favorite book by her is You Learn by Living. And there's a quote in there that she talks about the education system's purpose should be arming children with the tools to be able to learn for themselves. Right. And that includes reading and critical thinking comprehension. So I feel like that's something that's not given in response to a lot of these conspiracy theories right yeah. now. You know, a lot of it, there are rumor mill websites. Oh, yes. Specifically, yeah. they're created to put out bad information to confuse yeah. people. And my mother would often, back in the day, would fall prey to sharing these. And I would literally just do a quick search and then post on her post, this isn't true because click yeah. here. And um, there was a guy recently on Facebook thread that inflation has become a hot button topic Mm -hmm. recently. And I went directly to the Federal Reserve and found information and then shared it about what inflation is and how it happens. And there was a positive response. He was like, wow, no one has told me this. Thank you for sharing. And I just thought, how did they not know to just go look it up? Yeah. And so tell me, do you speak to that line of thinking in this book at all? Yet what I try and do is my approach about a lot of these ideas, it's like a genealogical approach or search for origin approach. Because Mm -hmm. if you do that, what you find out is when you look at the evolution of a pseudoscientific idea or a conspiracy theory or a pseudo-historical idea, what you'll find is that over time, the way it changed, it's, it's just absurd that this idea continues. And so, you know, that's one of the things we really need to work on is people get the background Mm -hmm. and things. Now, the problem is (laughs) that also there's certain things in human psychology where they resist that. Yeah. You know, it's like you have confirmation bias Mm -hmm. and, and that type of stuff. There's a chapter in where I talk about some of these psychological theories, like there's locus of control, it's called, and, and people, Oddly enough, if they have a high locus of control or a low locus of control, at the extremes is where they're vulnerable and susceptible to Hmm. false information. Interesting. And to go into why people believe. uh, And that's where the title comes in, Hope and Fear, because a lot of the people, they believe these ideas because either they hope that this is going to be what's going to happen, that's what they want to happen, or else they're fearful about something and they think this bad thing is happening. Mm -hmm. And I got the quote, by the way, because this 17th century skeptic, uh, Baruch Spinoza, he wrote a very controversial book in the 17th century. It was theological and political treatise. And um, I quoted him in there because he talks about that people are motivated to false belief by hope or fear. Wow. Um, you know, with a lot of people, you know, they're motivated because, you know, the idea, make America great again. And the question is, well, actually, where do you see this decline? 
Right. You know. Uh, what are we combating here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the whole thing is, is, it's just a watchword. Like when I was a little boy, that's when Leave It to Beaver came on television. It was 1957. And... It was a good show. Now, the fact of the matter is, you know, the Cleavers were fairly affluent mm -hmm. for that time and bigger house and stuff. And, and so it was a bigger house and I grew up in uh, my parents. We were lower middle class. And back in the day when there was a lower middle class and working class people also had the same basic lifestyle yeah. and stuff like that, whether it was white collar or blue collar or whatever. So you had that society. And People have nostalgia for that. And, and that's not surprising because mm -hmm. actually things were a lot more straightforward back then. You know, like nowadays you have money and you put money in a savings account and you get what? Zero, 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 two percent interest. Yeah. You know, right. and the thing is saving under those circumstances. Like, right. There's no incentive. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, a lot of people are jobs that don't have pensions mm -hmm. and then their employment security is poor. Mm -hmm. And in the past, this was not that way so much. Right. And so all of the technology and everything has changed things quite a bit, mm -hmm. but people want to blame it on globalization. Mm -hmm. Well, no, the thing is it's based on people who have the companies and so therefore hey i can move this to mexico and it'll right. be cheaper labor and stuff right. and people are left behind and everything and promising that you're going to preserve a what air conditioner factory in indiana then completely ignoring it once you get elected president right what kind of leadership is that yeah so people are making promises about bringing back a past that's going to be hard to recover unless fundamental changes in how the economy operates. Right. You know, it brings me to the idea, because you were talking about Make America Great Again, and it reminded me of a book I've read, Words That Work by Frank Lutz. Mm, yeah. So there's also, too, this psychological component that marketing has created, right? And yes. so Frank Lutz was a pollster in the 90s, and he worked, um, he actually made the contract with America. And he goes into the psychology behind the contract with America yeah. in his book. And he says specifically, we, we did 10 because that would incite a memory of the 10 commandments with the American mm -hmm. people. And they would feel this, this longing to want to comply with these 10 promises. And he said, we, we created it so you could tear it out. And we told them, tear it out of the TV guide and post it on the refrigerator so that it was always there in their face. And he worked for Democrats at one point, and he worked for Republicans at one mm -hmm. point, because it's all about who's going to pay him to create this psychological campaign that will impact the most to get the most votes. Yeah. You know, so that's, that, I believe, is a huge component of the way people think and see things at this time. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, because we can be manipulated. Of course, yeah. And, and uh, I know <laughs> back some years ago, they had a commercial for a Pontiac Sunfire. Mm -hmm. And it used scenes from the old Ben-Hur and they insert a Sunfire into the chariot race and oh, stuff like that. And, of course, being a history person and a film person, too, yeah. I appreciated all the references and stuff. I went out and got a Sunfire convertible. <laughs> It and, worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought, that's a neat card. So it says here, too, that you talked about, or a question they posed is, was Donald Trump the victim of massive voter fraud? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you have to say about that? Well, if they're talking about the 2020 election, mm -hmm. I mean, again, what people need to think about is all of the safeguards that we have built into the elections, and to make that claim, 
how can that be? And then when people have brought forward in court, and in many cases with judges that were appointed by Trump, they have lost every time on this. Now, what does that tell you? And the other thing about like a conspiracy is that a lot of the conspiracy theory is based on the idea that they have these secrets. Like with the Illuminati, that although everybody talks about the Illuminati, nobody's ever come forward and said, I'm an Illuminati and I'm tired of it. I think it's an evil thing and I'm going to convert. Never happened. And the other thing is, if this is such an effective conspiracy, uh, they haven't taken over yet. Right. Oh, either that or the people believe that secretly the Illuminati are in charge. But where's the logic in all of this? How can you believe this? But the thing is with the secrecy, um, people can't keep a secret. Right. Uh, the more people you have involved with something that's supposed to be kept course, secret, yeah. exponentially somebody's going to talk. Mm-hmm. And it could be like there'll be a deathbed confession or a person yeah. develops a conscience. Or, or they tell on their buddies to keep themselves out of trouble. Exactly. <laughs> that would roll on them. Yeah, 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 exactly. You can't keep stuff secret. Like, for example, there was a conspiracy theory that Roosevelt had goaded the Japanese into attacking at Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. because all of our carriers were out of the harbor when the attack took place. And um, the thing is that nobody came forward who would have known, because Roosevelt couldn't have done that by himself. Mm-hmm. And there had to be a lot of people involved. And like the admiral and the base commander, they were treated pretty roughly in terms of accusations and negligence. But the thing is, our, you know, our whole system failed on that because we had pretty good intelligence and we knew the Japanese were planning something. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know what, but we thought it was going to be an attack on the Philippines or on Guam or one of those places. And, and in fact, they were very bold and they attacked Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about it is that We'd broken the Japanese naval code at that point. Mm-hmm. And the people who were the decryption unit at Pearl Harbor, they said, oh, my goodness, there's going to be an attack. But naval protocol was stuff. They didn't report to the base commander. They reported to a liaison in Washington. Oh, wow. And the attack took place on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And this guy was in Shenandoah Valley on, on a, a way weekend from home. And so they couldn't get through with anybody. And the Japanese attack came in the next wow. morning. Because if we'd have been ready, it would have yeah. been gone quite a bit differently. Because yeah. for one thing, the ships would have gotten out of the docks yeah. and stuff. But But the thing is, like, people would maintain that Roosevelt had deliberately provoked the attack. Yeah. And again... People didn't like Roosevelt, though. There were people who didn't like Roosevelt from the beginning. You know, there was a conspiracy to actually overthrow Roosevelt in uh, 32 that didn't come off. Like when you read about it, it sounds like a lot of the same people that were involved with uh, 6th of January, their grandpa was doing it in 32. Yeah. (laughs) Same mentality. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, though. You know, and I'm just conjecture, but I think a lot about 
motivation, mm-hmm. right? And so intent and motivation, because you can, you can be around someone all the time and they do an action or say something and there, it could be taken two completely different ways, mm-hmm. you know? So there's almost a duality in everything. And so yeah. you can choose to believe them or they could be lying and it could be the other option, you know? So there's this level of really never truly knowing people's motivators too. Right. And that can cause mass confusion and you know if one person chooses to believe the negative thing and they run out and tell everybody that will never die you know that oh, yeah. that line of thinking will live beyond because yeah. it passes and they just they accept that as the truth yeah. never knowing the the positive equivalent to that same action yeah we well, take like you know the QAnon phenomena which mm-hmm. appears to have died down in the last year but when it was going in in the fall of 20 like I had one student that she was picking up on this stuff. And said, no, don't, don't, don't pay any attention to this stuff because it's a fairly crude platform and crude both in terms of uh, just how it looks, mm-hmm. but also it, it's got all kinds of different stuff on it. You know, like there's sex stuff and there's this, you know, this guy Q who's posting on there mm-hmm. as well. Now it's a very the, seedy type of yeah, atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, Q purports to be somebody who's in the government, that's in the know, that Trump's actually running things in secret, mm-hmm. okay? And that Q is making all of these predictions. And so he'll, he'll make a prediction and people follow Q and on. Oh, my goodness, no, get all agitated about that. Then it doesn't come true. So then another one will be made and it doesn't come true. <laughs> and another one. And he's never been right. Yeah, wow. he has never been right, and yet each one that comes out is the new Ten Commandments coming down from Mount Sinai, <laughs> written with the finger of God. And you're just sort of going, "How gullible can you be?" I'm, yeah. I'm just sort of going, "Hey, look, I'll take my printer and I'll print up some Trump casino stock. Do you want to buy it from me?" Yeah, everything you know? <laughs> is it's right at that level. And why do people accept this? Was a confirmation right. bias because they want it to be true because yeah. they, you know, they don't like Biden or they don't like Hillary Clinton or, right. you know, all these different groups. So uh, when all this was going on, I had a, another good friend and we talked about this often and he would often refer to like philosophy, types of philosophy and like the logical fallacies and all mm-hmm. of these things to combat this whole idea so and i i mean i'm not an expert and i don't know i stayed far away from the QAnon thing i just really didn't have the time oh yeah (laughs) i I had to go to work and think about other things but would you say those types of foundational philosophy and um, learning logical fallacies and those types of things are a combatant to living in this state of hope and fear and having confirmation bias? Well, that's one of the things we have. And in some cases it works. And in other cases, people are, you know, too far gone. Mm. There's a concept called cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And it's how people cope with things that undermine what they believe. You know, they're presented with something that what they believe is not true, but they still want to believe it. Right. So how, how do they get around that? How do they avoid the cognitive dissonance of dealing with the fact that reality would indicate that what you believe is wrong? Right. And that theory actually got its start. There was a group 
uh, up in Oak Park, Illinois, in the Chicago suburbs. And one of the leaders of this little cult called the Seekers was actually also, he was a campus doctor at Michigan State University in Lansing. And they were all getting together. And this is like, I think, 1954. They predicted that the world was going to come to an end, or at least as far as Chicago, there was going to be a big flood and everything in the Midwest was going to get wiped out. And the woman who was promoting this was named Dorothy Keach. She was just a housewife in Oak Park. And I think the marriage broke up because husband couldn't handle some of this (laughs) stuff. But anyway, um, but what happened is she had this group of people who believed the same thing. And again, where was she getting this information? Well, what she was saying is they, they were getting contacted by these humanoid aliens from this planet Clarion, wow. which is in the solar system, but it's on the exact opposite orbit from Earth, so that the sun is always between Earth and Clarion, okay. which physically is not possible, as astronomers will tell people, but they believed that, and they were getting contacted by these people. And so around Christmas time, they were saying that the world was going to come to an end. There was a couple hundred people out in the street watching what was going to go on, and they were singing Christmas carols, and the Oak Park police were trying to get people to leave and oh stuff gosh. like that. Well, while all this is going on, this Leon Festinger, who was a University of Minnesota psychology professor, he and a couple other faculty members and their grad students uh, infiltrated the cult. And it wasn't that big, so actually Festinger and his students and the other people were probably at least about a third of the membership, but they were just watching this stuff. And anyway, the prediction of the end of the world does not come true. The book that he wrote about this is called When Prophecy Fails. And mm-hmm. Dorothy Martin's called Mrs. Keach in the book. And basically she says, well, she was contacted by the people from Clarion. And they told her that thanks to all the prayers of the seekers that God had relented and was not going to destroy Chicago or the world or whatever. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, you know, her house is directly across the street from Longfellow elementary school and she's proselytizing to the kids and the parents are upset the police are upset and they basically told the husband that if he did not get her into a out-of-state mental institution she was going to get arrested for contributing to delinquency of minors and deciding to riot and stuff like that well instead she um, left the area and she joined a man george Williamson, there's a middle name in there, I'm trying to remember. Anyway, they all moved down to Peru and lived there for a number of years. She was like one of the last to leave, and she left rather malnourished and somehow got to Sedona, Arizona, which apparently is a big magnet for people who have rather strange ideas. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, then she died. So in looking at this, what she and the, the people who were the true believers did to get rid of the cognitive dissidents that the prediction didn't come true was... They had saved the world by their prayers. That was their idea. And so the apocalypse is still waiting out there somewhere, but they'd saved the world in the meantime. Wow. You know, and we see that with a lot of these other conspiracy theories too. If something's proven wrong, a new thing comes up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's all part of the process of cognitive dissonance. And, mm-hmm. you know, we like to be right. It, it's not that much fun to be wrong. <laughs> and so people do a lot to, Same face. Same face. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking, like, you can see that behavior on smaller scales all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, like that 
saving face business we, yeah. where they were wrong, but instead of admitting it or apologizing, they figure out a way out of it. Yeah, you know? circumlocution. Humans are very complicated. Oh, yeah. So we're really the root of the problem with everything, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's human nature. And, you know, we got a good side and a bad side. Yeah, we do. That's what we were talking about earlier, the duality of everything, good and bad. So what can, um, I'm going to ask you a final question. What can readers expect on the whole when they read this book? Well, um, I've got a couple chapters that talk about the things like cognitive dissonance and locus of control and why people believe. And, and, you know, it was a chapter that defines a lot of these things with conspiracy theory. And then there's a chapter on the idea of the 10 lost tribes, mm-hmm. uh, which again takes it from the beginning up until the present. And you just see that like, guys, all of this stuff about the 10 lost tribes is just so much stuff that had built up over time that has no basis in actual history. And then I look at the Illuminati Masonic conspiracy ideas, the, the, you know, New World Order. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the Nazis and look at all the crazy stuff they got up to. And the whole thing is one of the salutary lessons about the Nazis is that these ideas are, you know, when you watch ancient aliens, it's a little bit nutty, but, you know, I, I like stuff that, you know, I just went to see Moonfall, and it's enjoyable. It was a Roland Emmerich movie, and he takes all these various strange theories and turns them into a movie, and he mm-hmm. does a good job. And so that's grist for my mill because I study these weird theories, and it's interesting to see what he does with it. And with the Germans, they believed a lot of this stuff, and look where it got them. It right. got them in a world war. It caused a holocaust yeah. and that type of stuff millions died and so people need to keep in mind that this stuff is not particularly benign it's not particularly harmless now th- there's a big debate among scholars who study conspiracy theories and there's a group that talk about the stigmatization of this conspiracy theory how it's all bad well i'm not interested in the harmless ones yeah i'm interested in the ones that are going to cause big problems right and when People on false premises storm the Capitol building. That's not benign. That's right. a threat to a democratic republic that we live in, our way of life, our mm-hmm. government. And when people believe that the vaccines will cause you to grow a second head, uh, that's not benign. Right. It keeps the pandemic churning. Now, again, some of the people who are listening to this will think, look at that, what he's terrible saying and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, the thing is, all I know is that, like, pandemic has drug on a long time yeah. because people are not getting with the program and all i can say is thank god it's not more deadly than it yeah. is because w- what would happen if we had the same behavior how would the deaths would pile up i mean unfortunately i think if it were more deadly and it really impacted people directly they would have a probably faster response rate I think so, too, because at that point, the cognitive dissonance would not. Yeah, it's pretty real when yeah. you know everyone you yeah. know and love is impacted. Oh, yeah, because with the Black Death, it was sort yeah. of like, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Uh, when this is over with, when are you not going to be here? Because right. it was at least a third of the population. Right. Yeah, I looked up the Spanish flu just to read about it, and it said that people were bleeding from their orifices. Yeah. So I feel like if we were all walking around with blood coming out of our eyes yeah. and ears, everyone would be lined up. Like, yeah. go ahead and stick me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. I mean, my wife and I, uh, right before the vaccines finally came out, it would have been December of 20. We were both sick for about two weeks mm. with it. And it was not particularly life-threatening, but 
it was, you know, not something I wish to repeat because right. that fatigue. Yeah. I was in December. I thought, God, I feel like garbage. No. And I was, maybe I'm going to retire. You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm just telling him I'm not coming back. And I said, no, no, the plan is I'm going to retire yeah. in yeah. January 1st, 2022. And so. Well, congratulations. You've been retired for just two seconds. Yeah, really. Yeah, so still adjusting. <laughs> well, I'm glad you came in to tell us about it. Um, I'm looking forward to reading this. I'm definitely going to read it. And we're planning on having you here at the library to do a program April 7th. Yeah. So we're going to hopefully um, have some people here to learn about your book and get the opportunity to talk to you and just dig in your brain a little yeah, bit. Well, I appreciate that opportunity. So. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, it's supposed to be out in the United States on the 7th or 8th of March. I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I haven't seen the physical book yeah. myself. Well, we'll order one here too, so okay, we're excited. Okay, great. I appreciate that as well. Thanks for coming. It was great to have you and look forward to reading your book. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.